You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 463 of the Columbia Calling podcast. That's right, 463 episodes still going strong and now into our 10th year. Thank you to all of those of you on Twitter this week who have shared and given us a great shout out. I've noticed our followers continue to increase, so therefore any growth that way hopefully then converts into growth into downloads here of the podcast. And that said, thank you to James in the United Kingdom for signing up on Patreon and sponsoring not only the Columbia Calling podcast, but also the Columbia News Brief with Emily Hart, who is back this week. So you'll get that in the next segment of the show. This week's episode, number 463, is with none other than Dr. Natalia Pardo from the Universidad de los Andes, and she's a volcanologist, and we're talking all about volcanoes in Colombia and her research, her investigations around the world. Are we ready for the next big eruption here in Colombia? I think you know the answer, but also this is a fascinating conversation, yet another one that I get to geek out on because of personal interest. Of course, you'll remember that I got very worked up and excited for our conversation with Camila Gonzalez Rosas, again of Los Andes, talking about infectious tropical diseases. That was episode 461, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Before that, we had a repeat of Wade Davis's conversation. And last week, we had empowering women in the community of La Onda Medellin. That was with Andrea Gonzalez Duarte Vandeleu, born in Bogota, adopted as a baby and raised in the Netherlands, but has returned to Colombia to give back. So, the message is overwhelmingly positive. The message is out there. Let's try and talk about Colombia, not just the politics, although those seem to be the podcast episodes which are the most popular. But I want to get more of the sort of general information out there as well. So I'm still looking. I'm always open to suggestions. Of course, patrons, uh, patrons of Patreon, will be considered first, those uh, suggestions, and then after that, we'll take a list of who wants to, uh, who wants someone or whoever to be on the show. But of course, there has to be a Columbia-related topic. That is it. It's Columbia calling. But it's pretty broad, and the net is pretty... I mean, we can cast that pretty wide out there. So anyway, if you want to support us, that's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. You can throw a little, a little, a few dollars less than uh, a cost of a Starbucks at us, and that's just one a month. And so really in kind of incredible, and you help us make this more viable as it is taking up more and more time not that I don't enjoy it, I love it, and I know that Emily does too, but equally so, you know, we are working journalists. So anyhow, thank you again as we go into this week, and it's Easter week coming up. We'll be taking one week's break for Easter week. I don't know whether Emily will be providing the news that week, but, you know, we're allowed a week off. I'm taking my family. They've staged a mutiny. Uh, they kind of unionized themselves. They're my wife and two ch young children have never seen nor experienced snow. So no guess as to where we're going, as to where we're going. But anyhow, those of you out there who I've spoken to independently and individually will know where we're going. And maybe, just maybe, we'll run into one or two of you out there. Uh, well, yes, perhaps. 
anyway, all the same, thank you to everyone who's been supporting the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you to everyone who tunes in uh, weekly. We keep trying to keep this interesting and current. And of course, we will always continue to broadcast as long as you continue to listen. So thank you again. Now over to, well, some messages from our sponsors and then Emily Hart with the Columbia News Brief before listening to the absolutely, was mind-bogglingly bogglingly interesting discussion around volcanoes with Natalia Pardo of Los Andes here in Bogota. Thank you. Don't go away. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Colombia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of March 27th, 2023. The humanitarian situation worsened again in much of Colombia last year according to a new report from the International Committee of the Red Cross. While violence between the Colombian military and armed groups has dropped, more than 180,000 civilians were displaced in 2022 as armed groups continued to wrestle for control of territory and resources. Various indicators show a multiplication and strengthening of armed groups, whose activities gravely affect many in the most remote parts of Colombia, from attacks on medical personnel to landmines. 515 people were injured by explosives last year, the highest number in six years, with 56 of the victims dying. Colombian President Gustavo Petro's flagship policy of total peace is faltering. The government's ceasefire with armed group Clan del Golfo has come to an official end, and the Ministry of Defense has announced new military offensives. The ceasefire ended after the group's violence amid the miners' strike earlier this month, as well as a rifle attack against law enforcement. The group's lawyer has said the decision was based on gossip and rumours. Government intelligence agencies, however, report that so far this year, armed groups have broken the bilateral ceasefire around 210 times. Breaches have been made by FARC dissident groups Estado Mayor Central and Segunda Marquetalia, as well as at least 38 infractions by the Clan del Golfo. Meanwhile, Petro has recognized the political status of FARC dissident group, the Estado Mayor Central, opening the way to negotiations with them in coming weeks, as well as the suspension of arrest warrants for their leaders. A wave of setbacks to Petro's reform agenda this week. The health reform continues to stall and the new political reform bill was withdrawn, after it had seen changes in Congress so significant that it was deemed meaningless by its own backers, who demanded its withdrawal. Meanwhile, the government presented its pension reform, which would shift away from the mixed public-private system, moving the majority of the population towards state administrator Colpensiones. The bill would guarantee basic income of around 50 US dollars monthly for those who have not got a pension. The wealthier would be required to pay into a so-called solidarity fund. 
More than a thousand medications are currently suffering shortages in Colombia, especially those for arterial hypertension, psychiatric issues and pain. Government and private healthcare providers are publicly blaming one another for the situation, while a solution has yet to be posited. Food and shopping platform Rappi has been fined more than a billion pesos by Colombia's consumer watchdog for various irregular and illegal behaviours, including poor service, double-charging clients and selling alcohol to minors. After a long process and much delay, Colombia's Aviation Authority has permitted the merger between the airlines Viva and Avianca, reversing last year's block despite concerns about monopolization of domestic routes. Both Viva and Avianca have suffered serious financial crises in recent years, struggling to recover from the effects of the pandemic. The conditions of this merger include that Viva continues to be a low-cost airline, that it reinstates frequent flights between Bogotá and Buenos Aires, and that it reimburses customers whose flights have been cancelled since Viva suspended operations last month. There are still legal matters to be settled, including an alleged fraud by Viva being investigated by prosecutors and irregularities in the merger, currently under investigation from the industry and commerce watchdog. And another low-cost airline, Ultra Air, cancelled various flights and even briefly suspended ticket sales last week, citing financial issues and asking for government support. Henry Sanabria, the controversial director of the Colombian police, is being investigated by the Ministry for Defence over the influence of his religious beliefs in the management of the institution, specifically alleged transfers of uniformed officers for lack of affinity with his values. Sanabria hit headlines again this week with his ultra-religious statements and conservative views, publicly rejecting the use of condoms as abortive and blaming the LGBTQI community for HIV among police officers. Sanabria also spoke of exorcisms in law enforcement operations in an interview with Semana magazine. More migrants from Ecuador than ever before are passing through the dangerous Darien jungle, on the border between Colombia and Panama. In January 2021, the number of people from Ecuador making that crossing was registered at three. In January of this year, it was nearly 6,500, around 25% of the total number of migrants making the crossing, a figure only surpassed by migrants from Haiti. This is attributed to a substantial rise in poverty and an escalation of violence in Ecuador, due to its proximity to cocaine-producing countries and increasing government corruption amid growth of criminal groups. Finland is the happiest country in the world, according to New Gallup Poll, the World Happiness Report, while Colombia ranks at 72, dropping six places since last year and no longer in the top ten for the region. Finland is followed by Denmark, Iceland, Israel and the Netherlands, The poll registered self-reported happiness via variables like GDP per capita, social support, freedom to make life choices and absence of corruption. Gabriel García Márquez has overtaken Miguel de Cervantes as the most translated Spanish-language writer. According to new data, the Colombian author of 100 Years of Solitude now tops the list of those most translated this century, followed by Isabel Allende, Jorge Luis Borges... Mario Vargas Llosa, and then Cervantes. This is according to the World Translation Map, created in collaboration with the Spanish government. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is Columbia Calling, episode 463. You'll have noticed that we're going through sort of a stretch of people with academic backgrounds, and this episode is no different. It's very exciting for me to hear uh, have here Natalia Pardo, who is assistant professor of the Department of Geosciences at the Universidad de los Andes. She's a geologist from the Universidad Nacional. She got her master's in volcanology in at Mexico in the UNAM and her PhD from Massey University in New Zealand. So welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you very much for this invitation. No, the the pleasure is mine and the pleasure is that of my listeners, because 
I get all geeked out by these things. We had Camila Gonzalez Rosas a few weeks ago talking about infectious tropical diseases. And now we've got the expert, the expert on volcanoes in Colombia. And I know you've just come back from Boyacá. And tomorrow you're off to Nariño. And by virtue of the fact that I love coffee, I know that it's a, you know, comes volcanic earth in Nariño. Just tell us a little something. What are you going to do down in Nariño? Yeah, well, this is going to be an exciting trip because it's the time for giving back to the local communities what we've learned all these years. So this is going to be more like a space to share, uh, to translate what we do in a plain language that re- that can reach the people who needs to be reached. So this is going to be um, a multidisciplinary trip with colleagues from design and mm-hmm. from education uh, who managed to translate one of my papers that we developed together with the Geological Survey of Colombia a few years ago with the geological map of the volcano. Mm-hmm. They managed to translate that into a graphic novel. So we're going to launch the novel there, which is going to be the first um, public to to reach the the first phase, the first dialogue, and the first yeah show up. And so this graphic novel explains volcanoes and where the people. And I imagine it's a very rural community, perhaps with not the highest literary literary uh, what do we have, literary rates uh, and so on. So t- tell us, is it one? That, that, that sort of explains everything for them. It takes your academic work and puts it into normal language. Exactly. So it's, it's a huge challenge because, yes, it is a rural community, but also in Colombia, we don't have much of geology or earth sciences in school. Hmm. So we need to start from zero, from how the earth works, how tectonic plates move, how is, what's the position of Colombia in that puzzle. Hmm. It's a jigsaw (laughs) in the planet. And then from there, we try to explain specifically um, the Pacific Ring of Fire. Mm. And within the Pacific Ring of Fire, then Southern Colombian volcanoes. And then we focus on Doña Juana volcano, which is the, the inhabited volcano here, the one where we work. Wow. And tell us about Doña Juana. It's obviously, it's not dormant. It's an active volcano. Aren't all volcanoes active, really? It depends on what do you mean by active. And it, it, we think that we, we reached a common language but among volcanologists. But um, I think it's important to to stabilize like a baseline. So given that we, we've only been here for a few couple of millions of years, <laughs> everything that has erupted in the past 10,000, mm. it's potentially active. So it might not be erupting at the moment, but it could um, it could wake, it could start a new phase. And so we consider that if, if it is erupting at the moment, okay, that's uh, normally an active volcano for everyone. Mm. But the fact that it hasn't been erupted in the last years, it doesn't mean that it's um, over. Mm. And so we think that um, if it has done an eruption during the last 10,000 years, it's completely capable of Mm. doing one again. Mm -hmm. And we actually see that the most potentially, um, the the potential new eruption is going to be as the most frequent eruptions that that volcano does. So at the end, it's a matter of understanding how a volcano behaves normally Mm. without excluding extremes. So we actually also targeted the extreme events, the the worst case scenarios. Mm -hmm. But Doña Juana is more like Fuego in Guatemala. We call it a Vulcanian volcano. It listens a bit odd, but it's uh, what it means is that it's um, a plugged system. So it has a conduit that connects the magma chamber with the surface of the earth, but the, that conduit is blocked. But uh, by 
disruption. So there's like a plug there that needs to be removed. Mm-hmm. And that removal is a bit, um, it, it's violent, yeah. but it, it also modulates and complicates that exclusivity. So it's not like the most dangerous thing that you could have on Earth. There are mm-hmm. far worse than exclusive eruptions like Vesuvius. Or, yeah. <laughs> but this one is a, is uh, large enough to cause local ecosystem changes, like changes in ecosystems, changes in, in the local river mm-hmm. basin. Basically, as you said, these are coffee lands, so um, it has implications for crops. And Yeah, well, and of course. So where, I've got so many questions, where is Doña Juana exact, exactly located? Yes, so this is northern, northeastern Nariño. So we are in the southernmost department of the country, the the southernmost uh, state, and the capital of that state is Pasto. Mm -hmm. Close by, there is close to Pasto. There is a famous volcano that is called Galeras. Galeras. And yeah, this is northeast from there towards Cauca, which is the next uh, state. Mm -hmm. So it's just in the in what we call Maciso Colombiano, so where most of them or many of the major rivers um, are, are are like um, burning. Yeah, they find their source in these areas. And and what are the towns around Doña Juana? I mean, because, you know, I, I'm just sort of trying to put it into my, my head because I know Nariño, I know uh, Cauca, and I know there's all sorts of problems as well. It's a it's a it's a very complex part of Colombia. But what what are the sort of what are the towns in the immediate area? Yeah, so um, Las Mesas, which is where we're going now. Las Mesas is part of Tablón de Gómez. That that is like the major municipality there. So it's the upper river catchment of um, the Juanambu River, full okay. of history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, to the north, you might have La Cruz or Tajumbina, but then you reach like a shared territory with the neighbor volcano, which is Animas, which is poorly known. And that is like Vesuvius. That one is a bit more dangerous. And so why aren't you studying that one? <laughs> because it's a, bit, <laughs> it's a bit dangerous to go. Really? I mean, is it? It's it. There is a likelihood of of an explosive activity, or is there a likelihood of something happening? In animals, we have our typical Colombian problems of armed conflict. So, ah, yeah. okay, <laughs> are another danger. It's uh, it's not easy to get there to <clears throat> feel safe while you do your field work, and it's a tough mountain. So. At the end, you have to prepare a huge logistic mm. uh, to to be able to come there and to to be safe while you work. So, when you don't feel safe, then you need to to set up like a priority list. But mm. in any in, in in any case, the Juana was first because mm. um, when you do a priority list, you have to take into account the historical record as well. So, what is written or what has been told. It's important because mm-hmm. then those memories, the, the social memories, what gives you an idea of these low frequency eruptions that are might be lost in the geological record, but they are fixed in the in the memories of the inhabitants, and that is the case of Doña Juana. Whereas animals is not in the social memories, so the last one could have been ages ago compared to Doña Juana. So mm-hmm. and Doña Juana last erupted at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's the, the danger of explosive activity, but of a different type. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's put it that way. And I understand, I can understand that. And, and of course, we talked about that with uh, Cam- Camila Gonzalez Rosas as well, you know, her studies in, in these areas. So I find this fascinating. And now I imagine this, we're looking at Nariño Cauca area. So it's a large, if not majority, indigenous population. And, and, and so the history is more oral. 
I guess, not not written down. So this must be fascinating to you to have to sit down and listen to the elders talk about what maybe their grandparents and their great grandparents remember. Is this is a that's an enriching opportunity. Exactly. This is this is exactly what we do. So we hunt the record in the stratigraphy. So what the volcano has left in the landscape and especially within the river catchments, that's where we look um, the mosaic of past explosive eruptions. But there are many that are lost by the wind, by the rainfall, by even earthquakes that removed all this material as mass movement. So we lose a lot of, of the record and we try to fill it, fill those gaps with this oral history. It's not always easy. Um, Cauca is very indigenous, but this one, this area is um, campesina. Okay. So, um, and it's a, it's like a place where migrations related to economical reasons, to uh, war, mm -hmm. to the complex construction of, of the country, mm -hmm. um, results in also a fragmentary oral history. So it's, it's not easy to recover, but there are elders and there are elders remembering their grandparents and grand-grandparents' history. So fortunately, there was a geographer of Quindío, mm. another region, who got fascinated about recovering the oral history of disasters in Colombia. And so there is a book that um, we have and that allows us to read some of the testimonies of people who are not longer with us, but yeah. they, they fragments of those oral histories. But it's it's really a challenge, no? It yeah. was uh, it's one of those forgotten places related yeah. to Bogota. So Bogota is, is extremely centralized, <laughs> and um, and how the yeah how the country has built its own history it's really tortoise and it's really influenced or biased by whoever writes mm -hmm. the history so what we know it, it's uh, it's really complicated and that is why it's so important to work with other mm -hmm. disciplines as well so with historians yeah. artists, people that, but that's it. I mean, that's so much of the story of Colombia being Bogota centric, and let's and, and these things, and a region such as you know uh, Nariño, northeastern Nariño, southern Cauca is really going to be the last on the list. Uh, you know, I mean, not talking about the Amazonian regions and so on with so little population, but this is an area that has had that migration which is not a romantic migration. It's not like go west young man out of the United States. This is almost forced migration, as you say, for economic reasons. I wanted to ask though something else uh, in uh, technical. So you said you, you go to the rivers. So when you're at the rivers to study the rock strata, I guess that's where you can see the layers of what has happened. It's like a, I don't know, a, almost like a diary of events. Uh, how far can you go back in these events? How far back can you see? We we were able to see, um, we think <laughs> that we <laughs> see, as, all, as almost two million years. Wow. Um, but this is a image that was recovered from a technique that is called argon-argon. A radiometric dating and it's possible within tiny crystals that are mm. full of potassium and so potassium is radioactive and it decays mm. and we can manage to recover it how how much has it decayed into the daughter the, the, yeah, the, the isotopic daughter we call it okay. but so as a challenge because at the end is an age of crystallization, not necessarily of eruption. So those tiny crystals could have crystallized within the magma chamber before mm. erupting. So we try to get close to the moment of the eruption, mm. but we're not fully certain. However, like the mapping gives you an idea of, of, of that age as well. And then we are certain is when where we can use uh, radiocarbon dating. Mm -hmm. So radiocarbon, it's another method. It requires organic matter 
to be preserved and to host the history of when was it transformed, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Transformed into charcoal and buried. Mm -hmm. And then it has a limit. We cannot use the technique beyond uh, 50,000 years. Actually, in southern Colombia, we haven't been able to reach more than 40, 45,000 years. Um, so when we use that technique in Doña Juana, we, we've reached close to 6,000, pretty confident. Okay. And beyond that, we have these Pleistocene stories of the volcano that are challenging to, to measure. But then Aragon, Aragon is, has been our best chance. Although there is a friend, a colleague in Arizona who's helping us with another technique that is called uranium lead, and it's used in another mineral mm. that is um, called zircon. And, and ah. that guy might, might, <laughs> might have another piece of the story. <laughs> but so we're, we're um, mostly uh, talking about volcanoes. Most of the active volcanoes in Colombia reached that two, th- two million years, sorry. And okay. then they've been growing and collapsing. So they destroy themselves and regrow and then destroy again and regrow. Mm. And so the youngest volcano within that volcano, <laughs> yeah. family, it's uh, what we call Young Doña Juana. And so we know uh, uh, it has been um, erupting since, since, yeah, close to 6,000 years. I mean, 6,000 years is a matter of seconds in, in your work, really. I mean, that's... <laughs> It's, and all of this stuff, when you talk about the uranium uh, dating and the carbon dating, and well, you said that the, your colleague at the University of Arizona is helping, but is all of this, uh, these techniques accessible here in Colombia? I mean, to ha- do you have these kind of, uh, <laughs> is there the capacity to do these studies or do you always have to bring in uh, e- e- colleagues from the United States or elsewhere? So the capacity is installed for and in the geological survey. So as far as you belong to the geological survey, you can access the equipment and they have amazing, amazing uh, technicians and and a huge lab that is called, that's within the direction of Asuntos Nucleares, we call it. So (laughs) nuclear businesses. But so they can do uranium lead, and they are now, if, if I'm not wrong, they are calibrating radiocarbon as well. But for whoever is not involved within the geological survey, they, because they have a huge demand inside, so they're not able to open the lab for universities, for instance. So in that case, we just um, <laughs> use our colleagues and friends in other universities. So in my case, radiocarbon is basically done in Switzerland. And and then, um, yeah, we, we argon-argon was done in Oregon, for instance. So we managed to build up this network of collaboration. And, and so that also because we try to look for labs who have been decades working so we are mm-hmm. we have confidence of of, of a huge experience mm-hmm. well ac- i mean academic collaboration is so important anyway because it's it just opens that the the knowledge base to to okay. i so i was reading <clears throat> all about your background excuse me <clears throat> and one of your key investigations is not just bridging the knowledge, you know, geoscientific knowledge, so that people in the regions can understand, which I believe very strongly about, but it's also about <clears throat> the physico-chemical processes that trigger eruptions. Mm-hmm. Now, let's put that into a in regular language. This is, I mean, the causes for eruptions, really, I guess, is what it means. And so, We'll be talking about plate tectonics. We'll be talking about earth shifting. What are we talking about here? Okay, so I'm fascinated about how and why eruptions are explosive. So Mm -hmm. there are ways how molten rock or what we call magma can reach the surface. 
Mm-hmm. Um, probably you are more familiar with um, Hawaiian style eruptions, which yeah. are fascinating yeah. for yeah. filming pictures and they are really beautiful. Those are tranquil. Those are what we call effusive. So you can actually get close to them and, and video record them and, and take them pictures and things like that. But then there are ways how that molten rock or magma, it's able to host uh, gas inside. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have gas, there are many paths that gas can reach the surface as, as well. So it, it's strongly related to the viscosity of the magma. So if you have uh-huh. a very thick viscous magma, it's really hard for that gas to escape. And then that starts to reach up the conditions to build up pressure. Mm. So it's actually more or less what happens with a Coke when you shake it and then you suddenly open the the Mm. bottle. So you have that gas inside. You can't Mm. see it when the Coke is black. But as far as you shake it and open the the top, then 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 that gas releases Mm. explosively. So it's like a competition of the amount of gas that you have as a start, then how that gas is able to make bubbles, Mm. and then how those bubbles connect and grow Mm. and build up pressure inside. So it's... um, complex situation because it's the, the it's, it's like a physics of gases mm-hmm. and bubbles mm-hmm. but um so that is is a really nice to explore when when you see the texture of pumice rocks for instance so pumice is or scoria are textures of volcanic rust hosting the history of those bubbles and so we try to use techniques such as um, microtomography, which is another version of what medical doctors use to look for tumors, for instance. Mm-hmm. But then you you use higher energies, and then you can see um, rocks inside. And so those textures are the memories of mm-hmm. of, the, of those um, degassing paths. What mm-hmm. what we call this like degassing paths. Uh, also, the crystallinity of the rocks tells you a lot about that way of getting out basically so um, that is one of the questions like how those bubbles grow and interact and finally explode um the viscosity has also a chemical reason to be more or less than another um yeah than another magma um but also, if the magma interacts with external water, then that creates an exciting phenomena that has been studied, for instance, in nuclear explosions and experiments uh, that we call molten fuel interaction. So it's, it's something that happens when you have a liquid that is super hot compared to another one that is relatively very cold. So in this case, you have magma, I think, more than higher at temperatures higher than mm. 60 600 celsius degrees mm-hmm. and then you have an aquifer or a crater lake or snow mm-hmm. but usually the problem or not the problem but the explosion occurs when you have an aquifer which is um what, the source of the water that we drink comes from aquifers right mm-hmm. so it's ambient temperature and then you interact the magma interacts with that water and what explodes is the water, not the magma itself. It's just like a, the, the explosion of the magma is a consequence of the explosion of the aquifer. And that creates really explosive eruptions as well that we've seen in Tonga or in um, White Island in New Zealand as well, or in Poas in Costa Rica. So they are shorter and smaller mm-hmm. compared to the other ones, but they often happen in touristic volcanoes. So in, if you're in the crater, then at the end, it's also dangerous. So, and then uh, in that case, we don't study the texture of pumice, but we study the morphology of the ashes of the smallest particles. And then we use, for instance, um, uh, electron microscopes like ECMs or 
electron microprobes, like another other equipments that we we use to reach those tiny little particles. So at the end is an adventure behind <laughs> shapes and textures, and shapes and textures provide you the clues about why the magma, which yeah. is um, fluid, suddenly yeah. is fragile. So there was a, a Netflix documentary, wasn't there, about the New Zealand island? Was that the white volcano? What was it? The one? Yeah. What, yeah. White island. Was, so were you there doing your PhD when that happened? Uh, I was southern, but I uh, was in an island, and okay. my, my PhD supervisor was <sighs> involved to that research as well. I have a question then, because you mentioned at the beginning, so you're talking about the water, and so I'm 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 visualizing Crater Lake in Oregon right now when you talk about the water. But I'm visualizing also when you talked about the plug, obviously blocking these volcanoes. So I guess Doña Juana has the plug. I think of it like a cork in the, in a wine bottle type thing. Now, is that like what happened in Armero, which then the pressure grew up and blew the side out of the volcano is this what could happen at doña juana as well this kind of thing it's a bit different okay. so <clears throat> yeah it's a bit different so almero was a partially blocked system probably but the eruption was really tiny in uh, oh, the problem there was well tiny compared with yeah. two other it was but, the, the the river, surely in the. I mean, no, that, yeah. The, the problem at the end was um, that that eruption was able to melt the glacier, that mm. but then thick enough to produce a complex mixture of uh, mud, mm. um, really thick mud that was able to canalize along the river systems, and the problem there was the location of our meadow. Mm. At the where the river discharges all that amount of mud, but the problem there then was that combination of a glacier that was molten by an eruption, and then that mixture is like a concrete, like a wet concrete that moves uh, really fast and discharges and buries everything really quick. Um, Doña Juana. Is not glacier. It has no okay. glacier on top, which is not is not a reason to exclude the mm -hmm. the production of those mixtures. It actually produces the mixtures more mostly because you at the end need external water and um, what we call pyroclasts available. Mm -hmm. So mixed sediments available. So as soon as you have an eruption, an explosive an eruption, you produce those fragments, those sediments, and if you block a river, then you have like mm -hmm. a dam, and that dam can um, can can uh, just um, be removed and release a lot of of that mud mixture mm -hmm. that we call lahar. So that's another mechanism that that is actually quite um, possible and probable in most of these volcanoes and the volcanoes because we have a huge topography and a river catchment that connects the volcano to a lower base level. But in Doña Juana is more like what you were saying about the cork. And um this this plug is actually blocking then the conduit and the release that the how you release that plug is the is the real issue. So at the end what we know is is that it can release particles to the atmosphere, the ashes can reach the Pacific coast. Um, that is manageable. So it's a matter of uh, living with ashes, something that people living on active volcanoes can, can do. But the problem is, is if that column of particles and gas collapse. And in the Juana, they can actually collapse. So more similar to what Fuego in Guatemala did in 2019. So yeah. that, those those uh, phenomena are really dangerous and they are called pyroclastic yeah. current, really yeah. fast and hot. The When you talk about this, is this the same that happened with that Icelandic um, volcano that blocked all the flights in Europe uh, uh, some years ago? What was it called? Ah, I, it was yeah. really... <laughs> say, say that again? 
if I can say it right, it's something like Ayapia Yalopu. Yeah. Uh, was that a pyroclastic event? Yeah, that was a, that, yeah. So what we can expect in the atmosphere is something similar. But what we can expect in the rivers close in the river valleys close to the volcanoes, it's it's even worse because that that really column collapse causes this avalanche of gases that are really hot and they can fill river valleys, but they can also jump, burn, bury. Um, they can ingest vegetation and that uh, even that, that gets even worse because this um provides uh, carbon dioxide into the system so it's really it's it's really complicated and dangerous it's like a small version of Pompeii like it's not okay. the <laughs> version or its version but it's like a small okay. version so you know um, people out there don't know my father was a geologist and a geophysicist so my 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 knowledge but my my interest goes a little bit deeper because I grew up with with the chatter about rocks and and mm -hmm. formations and so on. But I uh, I think it's timely for us to talk about as we wind this down is predictions predictions of, of volcanic activity. Now I was reading a very recent article about earthquakes, obviously in the in the aftermath of the absolute tragedy in Turkey and Syria, the, the 7.8 on the Richter scale earthquake. But in Nature magazine, this obviously took place in February, uh, Nature magazine says uh, earthquake prediction is the stuff of science fiction. Uh, is it the same for volcanic, volcanic explosion uh, uh, predictions? Um. Volcanoes are a bit more generous than earthquakes <laughs> in that. <laughs> so they can give you um, signals of changes that can be monitored if you have the proper monitoring and surveillance system. Okay. Um, so that a proper network of volcanological observatories, that means having uh, seismic stations, but also that combines with monitoring how the volcano inflates or deflates. So something that you can measure with satellites and GPS systems. Also um, a geochemical monitoring network. So you can measure temperatures, how the pH or the acidity of the water changes before um, magma reaches um, the, the, the eruptible magma chamber. So, Though the, the most important is the seismological network mm -hmm. and is the list what you need to try to anticipate if something is reaching the surface. Now, the problem is once the magma chamber is replenished, how, how much time do you have yeah. to move? And this is something that is really complicated. And mm -hmm. um, so at the end, with a proper monitoring system, um, you might have a couple of weeks, a month in advance to think and take the the, the, the good decisions that minimize losses and especially casualties. Yeah. However, there are eruptions that are really, really, really challenging and really difficult to predict. And those are the ones involving these aquifers, the, mm -hmm. the, the magma water interaction that I was talking about, or even there are um, eruptions called blue sky eruptions. They call it like that in New Zealand, but there they might be phreatic in the mm. in the scientific terminology. What it means is that the hydrothermal system is becomes unstable, mm. and then that is the one that erupts. So it's not really molten magma reaching the surface, mm. but it might perturb. Like it, it might uh, cause um, perturbations in the vapor and water system uh, surrounding the volcano. And then that system is the one that becomes unstable and erupts. Those are really tricky to, to anticipate. And one of them was actually White Island, for instance. Yeah. And, and there are some, the, the little ones actually mm -hmm. are the difficult ones to anticipate. And 
problem of that is that you become confident to visit the craters <laughs> and then that um, increases the, the, the potential hazard, mm. at least for uh, hikers or yeah. people who are really close Ooh. to craters. I, I think I went up. It was Volcan Agua in Guatemala, and it was it was pretty hot up there. I mean, we could and sulfurous. Also, the the most visited one, I guess, in Central America, not Poas. I've been there, but uh, maybe uh, Masaya in Nicaragua, where everyone's sort of snowboarding down it. I mean, could you imagine? You know, <laughs> um, sandboarding, but um, Mount St Helens. I thought about as well. They did spot. Uh, the bulge, didn't they? The bulge taking place. Yeah, so Mount St. Helens is really an icon in the volcanological literature. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. When And now that, I mean, I, it's very much in my mind because only a few weeks ago we had the 5.9 earthquake that shook everything through Colombia and Bogota and woke my wife up. I would have slept through it, but she woke me up too. But, um, uh, does that give you information that something might be happening in Colombia? Do we think that this is, I think of my question, and I know it's a question that you can't answer because you're an academic and it's science, um, but can we expect a, a, a vol volcanic eruption before long in our lifetime in Colombia, a, a big one, a bad one? Yeah, there's always a chance. Um, yeah. As we live with earthquakes and we live with volcanoes and um, something that is a consequence of being in this part of the world where we have two oceanic plates mm. interacting with a continental plate. So the northwestern corner of South America is extremely <laughs> active in terms of tectonics. Mm. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> actually yes. we expect large earthquakes. And also we can expect large volcanic eruptions. It's mm. just um, that the earth doesn't behave like a, <laughs> an alarm clock and the, the frequencies are not within the human scale. No, it's yeah. not that you can say, okay, um, machine volcano, it's gonna do the next one in, I don't know, 50 years, 20 mm. years. No, we, we're not able to, to see that. What we do is to monitor, do the surveillance analysis, which is done 24 hours during of the whole year. The yeah. volcano observatories are monitoring the signals. And then when changes are recorded, then, then you increase the alert level. Yeah. So it's like um, traffic light that you use to move from a green situation when we are just um in our lives living and we know that we live in us but we we enjoy more like the benefit of being there and go to <laughs> towards um yellow level and then to orange level and from orange to red so then those are uh ranges that we need to uh, become aware of just to make better decisions from an individual level mm -hmm. towards a family level, towards a community level. It's not that you can blame someone for your own decisions, but we need to be aware that we live in a really active country. And then in a, any moment, a, member, a magma chamber can... Yeah. Um, so which, which volcano here is in Colombia is red? None. Okay. We, have, <laughs> <laughs> we are in yellow with Nevada. The resource, anyway, a lava dome. It, it, it's it's partially blocked. Then one of those blocks is coming out, and this is why we had ash emission a few days ago as well. Uh, so of it releases. Sometimes it breaks at the limit of the magma and the viscous magma and its walls. Then you have some. Um, Places where gas can um, become overpressurized, and then you can have this little as ash emission. So now the risk has been like that since 2015. It started in 2011 again. But then you talk to someone in Manizales, and they are very 
used to that. Mm-hmm. That's they are <laughs> close to the volcano. They see it every day. Um, and then you have the others that are presenting changes, so they deserve attention. And yeah. that, that hospitals need to have protocols that volunteers and civil defense needed to have committees that that are constantly training on what to do mm-hmm. in case of. So you have a community that needs to have a plan. That's that's the current stage. Okay. If yeah, it's okay. orange, then another. But there's no orange ones. We're in yellow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there's there's someone reversing a truck near your house <laughs> which we all had to listen to but that's okay that's what it is and so okay novella del ruiz is is our one i think it's it's absolutely i i just think it's fascinating i really do and and that that there is a whole protocol in 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 uh you know process if if something moves up to yellow or to orange you're telling the hospitals you're telling the volunteers i think this is great does that mean that Colombia is more or less ready just in case something happens? Or uh, um, because there's a book that came out and I've forgotten what it's called and I've forgotten the author, but I saw an interview and it was this last week about the readiness for a, a, like a mass disaster in South America. And I mean, I don't need to read it to be able to say I'm fairly certain that we're not ready. No, we're not ready. <laughs> but. Um, because the, the um, so the framework of disasters are a bit complicated, and yeah. it's they they do not only depend on nature. Mm. So the part that we can measure, that we can quantify, that we can kind of understand is the hazard component. So what mm. nature able to do? What is the most frequent scenario? What is the worst scenario? That is something that we are able to read from this uh, geological past of the volcano and also from the current state of the volcano with the geophysical and geochemical tools at the observatories. So we can try to estimate hazards. So what is um, the probability of occurrence of something <laughs> that might be dangerous for and then you have the the rest of the framework which depends on the vulnerability of the systems that are exposed to those hazards so for instance you have ecosystems vulnerabilities or environmental vulnerabilities you have uh, infrastructure vulnerabilities which are the easiest to quantify that's something that civil engineers Quite, do, do quite a lot, quite often to design the, the structures. But you also have one that is really challenging and is the social and organizational vulnerabilities. And those increase where you have a huge um, gap in, in the socioeconomical um, structure of, of mm. any society. And also the ability to respond and the capacity building exercises, the ability to take decisions, not just to think them, to take them. Mm -hmm. It's something that is intrinsically related to your socioeconomic level, but also to the connectivity within your community. And um, in our situation, that is really low. So um, for instance, and, and it's difficult to quantify and it's difficult to measure and it's difficult to monitor now how the community might be um, able to cope with what is going on and then the ability to recover from what happened. And so besides the socioeconomical situation, the armed conflict really complicates things. <laughs> and so it, it is really... Well, so when we are measured in these uh, risk levels in the world, so UNESCO has a an informed, it's called informed disaster risk reduction, something like that. And it's like a way to put as numbers. And we are always with um, worrying numbers, but what makes us really bad at recovering or at coping with is this huge um, fragmentation within society. Mm. and. And so, the, yeah, the, the pe- 
countries with armed conflict are really um really like a, the the worst place you can have in terms of disasters yeah i think that's a uh, an incredible point that on the social vulnerability, the armed conflict, and of course the people in the lowest socioeconomic bracket, you know, those who have struggled, uh, who have been displaced, who have found their little plot of land in order to survive, that's basically it. Uh, are the most at risk. Who wants to give up their land? You know, they've already probably abandoned land before or they've lost it in some other way they won't go because then you always have that a difficult decision of and then what will i do yeah and sometimes people are more afraid of after the disaster surviving after Mm. than just um assuming the risk and so that is something that is also really important that many people are from wealthier countries the general sentence that you listen to is like oh but why they do live there Mm. if they know something is going to happen but it's something that is not that easy and it's not that easy to just move out it's not that easy to imagine yourself and your family to start over in a new place without the minimum conditions to start and so those minimum conditions are a challenge for the state. Mm. And, and that is something that we've got even with um, with mass movements like Mokoa in 2000. I knew you were going to say it, and I was going to say it, Mokoa. And I was I reported on it a lot, uh, you know, I, for various outlets. Uh, and the, the questions always were, why do people live there? And I'm like, they've got nowhere else. It's the people who live. It's not. It's, it's also like, uh, um, as you were saying, when when uh, these campesinos and indigenous communities have a strong bond to their land. Their mm-hmm. land is way and the reason to be alive. And mm-hmm. yeah, as in many in many regions and in many cultures, and even not only in Colombia, it's like your blood is there so your family lineage is there so it's it's not um easy also to mm-hmm. choose another place because in countries like this one you you will face nature mm-hmm. every it's mm-hmm. not if it's not the earthquake it's a mass movements if not this then you have floods we have enso so el niño la niña all this climate and as extreme weather conditions are are really tough in in the tropics. If not, you have tsunamis. If not, <laughs> so it's like it's it's not a matter of running out, mm. but a matter of yeah, increase this capacity building of living with mm. nature. This is where you need your social scientists to come in and, and do these studies. I'm a social scientist. Employ me. <laughs> um, <laughs> that said, uh, Natalia. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I know my listeners will agree. It really has been very special to hear from you. And you speak with such authority, as I would I would hope so as well, and, and uh, about this this uh, this topic. This uh, And I just think, you know, we live in, I don't even know how many volcanoes there are in, in Colombia, but we live them, they're everywhere, really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, let me take this moment to say thank you so much for your time, for sharing this knowledge uh, so unselfishly. Uh, We've been talking to Natalia Pardo. She's got all sorts of uh, academic articles out there that are fascinating to read if if the uh, desire so takes you. She's the assistant professor of the Department of Geosciences at the Universidad de los Andes in downtown Bogota. She got her undergraduate at the Universidad Nacional in uh, geology. She got her master's in volcanology at the Universidad Nacional Mexico, UNAM. And she got her PhD from Massey University in New Zealand. So We have been talking to a true expert. Natalia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
And good luck in your next study down in Doña Juana again. And be careful, please. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We've been talking to Natalia Pardo. This has been episode 463 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I know you've enjoyed it. We'll go over now to our uh, some of our patrons who support us. But of course, if you fancy throwing a few dollars less of a cost of a Starbucks per week, uh, you can support us on patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. So thank you again for listening and be sure to tune in again next week. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again.